Amen. Morning, everybody. Thank you very much, Andrew, for leading us uh, this morning. When they were doing the speakers for the David series, all the names were put in a hat. (laughs) And I got the one with Mephibosheth. I've been thinking, what should we call him this morning? Meth? Shib? Seth? M? <laughs> 007? <laughs> I, 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 anyway, with God's help, <laughs> um, we'll, 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 we'll get through without too many pieces of being tongue-tied. That uh, image up on the screen there, is a pretty commonplace one now, is it not? Uh, Whenever we turn on our televisions, open our newspapers, whatever sort of news media we're looking at, that is a pretty commonplace sight. And, of course, it can be in a number of locations now. Uh, Maybe, you know, there were times when it was just perhaps in a single location where there was a war, this was happening, you had refugees and you had migration but it seems now that there is a sort of across the face of the globe um, a sort of section of the population that are perpetually on the move you know I suppose the general drift is from east to west from south to uh, the west and, and, and so on but it's those sites of people on the move for whatever region they've been displaced from their homes their homes their towns their cities have been uh, destroyed and so on or they have reasons to be leaving maybe they're uh, economic migrants maybe they are political migrants Um, maybe they're religious migrants and they're they're on the, the move and they're looking for somewhere where they can just stop off and perhaps take stock and just have a roof over their heads and have the basics to be able to survive. And of course we now know that such is the scale of the operation that um, some of the camps can be <laughs> like that. That is your home. I don't know what the postcode for that might be, but it looks big enough to justify... <laughs> What is it? Several. Well, is it a postcode, a different postcode for every 13, 15 homes, something like that? You know, that is fairly significant. And people live there with seemingly little hope for what the future might bring. Just so thinking of today, will we survive today? And so on. Occasionally... Their condition is recognized by those that uh, are somebody who think that they need to go for who they are, to identify with them, to show to them that they are not completely forgotten, although what do you do about it seems to defy just about everybody. I wonder what he said when he was shaking hands with that guy. (laughs) 
how do you like my suit? <laughs> I, I can't think of anything more practical that the prince <laughs> could have chosen to wear out of his vast wardrobe than what he was, it sort of seems to be to smack back to the old colonial days, you know, and uh, Puna and the pith helmet and all that sort of thing. But bless him, he did it, you know, and he's local, he's one of our locals. In its day and at its time, I suppose it was possibly to such a settlement that David sent that delegation of people to search for uh, Mephibosheth. If you remember, the father of Mephibosheth was Jonathan, and we heard all about uh, the, that very special friendship between David and Jonathan last week when Peter spoke to us. And we looked at uh, what it is to be a real friend to somebody. And then his grandfather was Saul, and now both of them uh, are dead. Lodibar was miles away to the north from Jerusalem, just south of Galilee, and then he needed to go east over the Jordan, and then he needed to keep going out into the desert and out into the mountains. And there in the back of beyond, you might find this settlement of Lodibar. It was where refugees went. It was anybody who just wanted to escape and become anonymous and lose themselves somewhere in their day-to-day -day life and never be recognized or caught. It's where they went into hiding uh, to escape. It was barren. It was desert. It was mountainous. Seems to be several meanings to its name. No pasture, no bread, no communication. And that was where Mephibosheth lived. I think we get the drift. And I suppose when suddenly out of the blue, this delegation of royalty showed up searching for him, and him and only him, I guess he must have thought his time was up. You know, I've been able to live thus far, and now my time is up. He was the sole survivor of uh, Saul's descendants. And it was the custom of the day that when a king conquered, then he would not only make sure that the opposing king was dead, but also his descendants so that they could eliminate the possibility of any future uprising in retaliation uh, in a future day that would be any threat to the conquering power. And here it is that uh, Mephibosheth is the sole survivor. My day has come. But as we know, um, that delegation, they weren't there that day to administer justice, according to the custom of the day. Back home in Jerusalem, in the palace, David now uh, on the throne, ruling as king. David had sat there posing and reflecting, I guess, one day. When I was reading uh, some background stuff to today, um, it uh, spoke of the covenant that uh, Jonathan and David had. And how the custom of the day would be that when you made a covenant with somebody, 
you actually did do it in blood. And then you rubbed a certain compound into the cuts that you'd made, the cuts of the covenant made in blood. And that made sure that it never, ever healed properly. There was always a scar. And uh, somebody just conjectured, I suppose, using their imagination, that maybe David was in his palace. He was reflecting, and he just happened to glance down and see the scar of Jonathan. And that prompted him to think in this particular way. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Crumbs, that was radical thinking, wasn't it? Nor is there anyone left that I can eliminate for all the threat to go and for me to be really safe upon my throne. But is there anyone left because of Jonathan and me that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? It broke all the traditions of the day. It's radical thinking. It's breaking new ground. And of course, what we are beginning to see unfold with David is grace in action. David is showing grace in those actions, not treating people according to the custom of the day as they may have been considered to have deserved it and so on and so forth, but they were dealing with them in in a merciful and a kind and a compassionate way because of a covenant that had been made to John, his closest friend. David, a man after... God's own heart. We see it, don't we, here. That reflection of the character of God being shown to David. And I suppose that uh, rather like the expectations of the lost son, uh, those of Mephibosheth, as he went back, was taken back to Jerusalem, were not much greater than the prodigal son, the lost son. They weren't great. (laughs) At best, he thought he was going to be a servant. But would he live? Would he die? How surreal it must have been when finally in the palace and finally in the presence of David the king, we find David speaking these words. Don't be afraid. (laughs) Don't be afraid. The guy was shaking in his boots. This is the end, you know. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. It was surreal. Beyond his expectations. How could this ever be? And Mephibosheth bowed down. Mephibosheth bowed down. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Disabled at five years of age, I guess that he may well have grown up for the life of that of being a beggar. Given that he had escaped, given the anonymity that perhaps he wanted to keep, given his condition, 
of being disabled. But now what a transformation. What a transformation as he now is going to be welcomed and received into the household of the king and always be able to eat at the king's table. It's a transformation. But then that's what grace is all about, isn't it? Grace is all about God transforming us. And now David, in a position where he sees the need, recognizes the need of someone else, and motivated by that situation that he was in, transforming that person's situation. Well, it's a long time. I think, since I last heard anyone speak uh, about this Old Testament story uh, of David and Mephibosheth. But uh, whenever I used to hear it, way back several years ago now, like I said, I've not heard anyone preach on this for quite some little while now, but it was usually in one of two settings. It was shown as a wonderful picture of the grace of God uh, as seen in the gospel. And you would get evangelical speakers uh, who knew how to milk every application that they could think of, of what you see in there as a picture of the gospel in the transforming situation from, from, from Mephibosheth uh, from in his state through to the palace because of all the love and grace that had been shown to him uh, by David. And they used to milk it for, for just about everything. And I used to begin to think that they were seeing things there that weren't there. You know, and I used to get a little bit uncomfortable with some of these things. And the other time, of course, is uh, a time such as we've had just now. When we come to remember the Lord in the breaking of bread. In those times of what we call communion. Communion with God. We consider what we were. We considered where we were before God until that day. By his grace, he spoke into our lives. For us to be able to see our need of him. For us to be able to see our need of him. Uh, And as a result of that, a work of transformation has taken place in us. We may not be very good at showing showing it as we've been thinking because we're British except Mike, and now we sit at the king's table, rustling around various resources when I was preparing. I came across this quote, at God's table, I discover freedom. At God's table, I experience grace. At God's table, my tongue learns the taste of praise. I quite like that. My tongue learns the taste of praise. I drink favor and I eat the fruit of obedience. I learn to be poured out wine and broken bread. And in the process, I am fed. And in in the process, I am fed. What it is for us to be spiritually at the king's table. I also came across this, a summary of, of, of the application, you know, evangelically, of this being a picture of the gospel uh, 
in the, on the internet as well. And it went on forever. <laughs> and all the points did seem to be valid. And I haven't got all of it here, but I have sort of abbreviated it down. Like Mephibosheth, we're hiding, we're poor, we're weak, we're lame, and we're fearful before our king comes to us. We're separated from our king because of our sinful ancestors and our deliberate actions. We separated ourselves from the king because we didn't know him or his love for us. Our king sought us out before we sought him. The king's kindness is extended to us for the sake of another. We must receive the king's kindness in humility. The king returns to us more than what we had lost in hiding from him. We have the privilege of provision at the king's table. We are received as sons at the king's table with access to the king and fellowship with him. One couldn't be uh, preparing uh, a subject uh, uh, based on a chapter like this this morning without um, the Philip Yancey book. What's so amazing about grace uh, coming to mind? And uh, one of the classic quotes from that book that's been so popular in recent years is, grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I who deserve the opposite, I'm invited to take my place at the table in God's family. All by grace. And that would be basically what the gospel message, as it was called in those days, would be. That would be the story of David and Mephibosheth. How we come to know the wonder of God's salvation for our situation to be transformed from what we were in all our poverty and sinfulness before him to then be at the king's table to enjoy all the sumptuous riches forever and ever, extending through this life in our spiritual experience. And as Mike reminded us in the breaking of bread, when we are taken up for that great feast uh, when, of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and for whatever there will be in eternity as we sit at the king's table. And we would sing a hymn, and somebody would have a prayer, and we would go home. But, um, that was before we had tea and coffee <laughs> being served. But of course, we've only looked at one of the characters, really, haven't we? That's, that's Mephibosheth. That's looking at Mephibosheth. And our story is about David. And Mephibosheth. And actually, the title for this morning is that David and Mephibosheth, the fruit of grace. Well, we've been able to see very clearly, haven't we, uh, how grace <laughs> worked in Mephibosheth's, well, that's a good one, life being shown by David towards him and how it worked. Grace of David to Mephibosheth to transform his situation. But it's about David and Mephibosheth. 
And there's been hints about what we need to go on to say for this morning, uh, for this morning's subject to be fully completed, uh, and and to get where I think perhaps somewhere like what was intended uh, for for this morning. We often just think of grace as being a New Testament word, don't we? Because after all, the Old Testament has got another word, it's law. And so we kind of get fixed in our thinking in a certain way. That grace is what we find in the New Testament, and of course it's true, it's absolutely true. (laughs) Fully seen, fully realized, fully demonstrated by God and his son Jesus. But I don't mean to say that it's not there in the Old Testament because we've just seen a practical example of it. But of course you've only got to dip into uh, the Psalms and read some of them to recognize that, that David knew something of what grace was all about. It was something that he had experienced in his life and he had experienced it from God. He'd shown it at the human level with Mephibosheth but now he had known what it was to be blessed by the grace of God. And uh, he experienced it in his life. He knew too what the forgiveness of God was all about. And so, for example, when you come to that lovely Psalm 103 that we're so familiar with, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. This is David writhing out of his experience of his relationship with God. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's grace. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so as a receiver of God's grace... David now has come to realize that he needs to be a demonstrator of God's grace. As he had received, now he needed to give of the grace of God. And what I believe we see in 2 Samuel 9, in the way that David behaved towards Mephibosheth, based on his own relationship with God and the grace that he had received from God, is the fruit of God's grace. Way back uh, in days when I had a secular job and worked, with a proper job, as they say, um, for nine years I was responsible uh, for energy systems in, in agriculture and horticulture, uh, in the southwest uh, of England. So, and on the horticultural side, I used to, to work with some of the big growers in, in the southwest with the various crops that they produced and how they could make, uh, have more efficient growing systems and so on and so forth. And there was a very large grower um, just, this, just out in the country, by the coast, um, as you approach Plymouth. And he grew... Uh, tomatoes under glass, great vast crops. It's like going into operating theatres. That's why they've got no flavour. <laughs> you know, you need a bit of dirt, don't you, to have a, a real tomato. Uh, but then his other crop was, was chrysanthemums. And that would be two types of chrysanthemum. It was uh, cut flowers, the ones that you go into the florist. 
And the other were those what they call pot mums. You know, you get half a dozen cuttings, seven cuttings actually, put in a pot. And, uh, and uh, you, you know, they start off life having a root system put on them. And six weeks later, you know, they are to Marks and Spencer specification, certain height, certain diameter, so many flowers, so many buds still to come. And those that met the spec, all right, went off to M&S. And uh, then those that didn't went down the market, you know. And, uh, of course, they became very popular. But, of course, when you're doing that, when you're growing those sorts of crops, you know, year on year, and with the pot mums, that was every seven weeks. You have six weeks beginning to end, a rest week, and setting everything up for the next. So you've got to have a mother stock of your different varieties that you're growing that you can source. And at the back of the greenhouses, there was this sort of fairly un... If it was somebody's allotment, you know, they would have been accused by the council of not keeping it up together um, because it was not very well cultivated at all. But it was gold to the grower because it was their mother stock. And so if, next, if the next batch had to be a batch of this particular variety or a mix of certain varieties, then they would go and they would take the cuttings from the mother plant or the mother plants. And they knew <laughs> that when they took cuttings from that mother plant and potted them up in that pot, what came out six weeks later was a replica of the mother plant. There was lots of other routines they had to go through to make sure that they were... Um, virus-free, and, and all that type of thing. Uh, and John 15, of course, is, is all about Jesus saying, I am the true vine. That when we come to Christ, <clears throat> having received of his salvation, we are grafted into him, who is, if you like, the equivalent of the mother stock. And so the fruit that we should bear should be consistent with the mother stock. And David had received grace from God, God's grace. And now the fruit <laughs> that comes needs to be consistent with that grace that he had received. And now he will be able to demonstrate to others. We should be... Uh, seeking out our enemies, seeking to bless them. We should look for the poor, the weak, and the lame, and the hidden to bless them. We should bless others when they don't deserve it and bless them more than they deserve. We should bless others for the sake of someone else. We must show the kindness of God to others. Philip Yancey again, the Christian knows to serve the weak, not because they deserve it, but because God extended his love to us when we deserve the opposite. Christ came down from heaven, and whenever his disciples entertained dreams of prestige and power, he reminded them that the greatest of the one, the greatest, sorry, is the one who serves. The ladder of power reaches up. 
the ladder of grace reaches, reaches down, reaches down. Another one, that at least is the vision of the church in the New Testament. It's a colony of heaven in a hostile, hostile world. Dwight L. Moody, the great uh, uh, preacher of days gone by, said, Of 100 men, one will read the Bible. The 99 will read the Christian. Those showing the fruit of grace. I would rather, far rather, convey grace than explain it. That's quite a challenge, that, isn't it? It is quite hard to explain the grace of God. <laughs> Philip Yancey says, forget about that. Well, no, we haven't got to forget about that because we're called to proclaim it. But <laughs> he says he would prefer to, to demonstrate it, to show it, than to explain it. When I... Uh, I need to be finishing. This will be a closing remark. <clears throat> um, when I saw this program for the Summer Sundays come out, I thought to myself, oh, that's great. <laughs> you know? Um, we've been going through Luke, and uh, that's all pretty demanding as we uh, look at the life of Christ. And we, we look at his actions. We look at his words. We look at what he says about needing to be a disciple, a follower of him. The demands that that will make upon us. Um, we will each have to take up our cross to follow him. You know, and I'm glad that we only deal with Luke in about sort of six or eight weeks at a time because I can only take so much of that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Before I want to get off the ropes to use a boxing, <laughs> you know, to, to get my breath and try to get my head around some of that. And I thought, you know, all we're going to do half a dozen weeks from the life of David. Isn't that lovely? Those lovely old Bible characters, those lovely, that lovely... Uh, those lovely Bible stories of David and so on. But I don't know about you, uh, with the approach that uh, has been taken with this series and as people have spoken so far through the series, um, <laughs> there's been no respite. There's been no respite. Because with every character that we've considered alongside of David, whether it's Saul, whether it's Jonathan, um, you know, in, in today, Mephibosheth, and so on, you know, uh, it's the same. And, and whether we're talking about being, uh, as with Abraham, a friend of God, or whether we're aspiring to be like David, a man or a woman after God's own heart, there's fundamentally no difference between that and being a follower of Christ, a disciple, because it's all the same. It's being Godlike. It's being Godlike. And so... I trust that God has been speaking to us all uh, through this series. Uh, not to give us some nice Sunday mornings uh, about lovely David, you know, wonderful character that he was, rogue that he was, you know, all that sort of thing. But that God has been speaking to us to touch our lives. And today, that he might show us afresh 
that it is great to be those who know God's grace and have experienced it and we've received it in our lives. But now (laughs) we turn over the coin because the responsibility with that privilege is (laughs) that we need to demonstrate the fruit of grace. May God help us for his name's sake. Amen. Andrew.